Ever hear a computer say, um? Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. You have now. That was Google's voice assistant, Duplex, which is automating tasks for more and more people. It can sound even more like a real person because real people, such as John Legend, are recording their voices for Google products. Whoa, I'm feeling this new voice. You can find me on all kinds of devices, phones, Google Homes, and if I'm lucky, in your heart. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, the advances and concerns with AI, artificial intelligence, given our society's increasing reliance on and increasing interaction with machines. I'm Fenella Saunders. There have been plenty of recent advances in artificial intelligence, including most especially a type of AI in which a machine kind of learns for itself. Although it's called machine learning, it depends on a set of instructions from computer programmers and access to lots of data. Jeff Dean is the head of Google's division of AI. We spoke about the field of machine learning, and I started by asking him where he sees the field going now. Here's our interview. The field of machine learning has made a lot of progress in the last 10 or so years. In particular, a kind of machine learning called deep learning, which is essentially a rebranding, if you like, of artificial neural networks, which have been around for 30 or 40 years as a way of describing sort of abstract ways of learning from interesting inputs and outputs. You can learn very complicated kinds of things. And it turns out that these are really useful for all kinds of problems in the fields of computer vision, speech recognition, language understanding, language translation. And the fact that computer vision now works as one example but also speech recognition and language understanding are starting to work much better than they have, means that all of a sudden computers can perceive the world around them much better than they could before. And that has implications beyond the boundaries of computer science into many fields of science and and engineering, where all of a sudden, you know, many of the kinds of things that are grand challenges in the fields of science and engineering are now sort of amenable to having machine learning be applied to some of the problems in those grand challenges. So things like, how can we make healthcare better for people? Machine learning should be a component of that. How can we develop, you know, rework urban infrastructure? You know, autonomous vehicles are going to be a big factor in how we rethink how cities should be designed because they're going to be very different in characteristic than uh, driven cars. I understand machine learning was built on the model of showing a computer lots of examples until it figures out the connections. Are there other mechanisms for machine learning now? So a lot of the most successful kinds of machine learning that are really having an impact today are really of that form. Collect a large data set of inputs and outputs that you care about. So it might be a bunch of pictures, and each picture is labeled with, that's a truck, that's a pigeon, that's a a particular kind of monkey. And through being exposed to many examples like that, the system can learn to generalize to a completely new picture. Now it can say, well, that picture is also a truck. So that's called supervised machine learning, where you have kind of the inputs and the outputs of the problem you care about, and you have many examples of that. But other kinds of machine learning are also making significant strides. So there's a technique called reinforcement learning, where essentially you have a set of actions you can take, and at each step you try to predict 
what actions make the most sense here. And then as you take a bunch of actions, eventually you might get a signal of was the set of actions you took here a good idea or not a good idea, maybe a reward function. If you imagine playing the game of Go or the game of Backgammon, eventually you win or lose, and then you can sort of attribute credit to all the decisions you made in playing the game of like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that, I should have done this. And that can be used to teach systems kind of to even learn on their own. So if you start to pit a couple of computers playing a game against each other, they can each learn to play the game by experiencing playing against their opponent. One of the bigger problems with machine learning or the holdups with machine learning has been getting these data sets. So is this new approach designed to kind of get past that barrier? Yeah, so it, it is sometimes an impediment. Sometimes the data kind of naturally occurs and you actually have ready access to it. But in many cases, you actually need to create a data set and that's sometimes quite labor intensive. There are a bunch of techniques that can be used to make it so you need many fewer examples. So if you have sort of a related task with a lot of data already, then sometimes you can do what's called transfer learning or fine tuning, where you train on that bigger task with the larger data set and then use the trained model and now start to train it on the other task you care about that is related where you only have maybe a thousand images. So maybe you have a general purpose computer vision model that can distinguish lots of things and then you really want to train a model to distinguish you know, 60 different kinds of mushrooms and you have like only a few examples of that. So that is the kind of thing where, where transfer learning or multitask learning can be used. Reinforcement learning doesn't really help you if you really have a supervised learning problem at the heart of, of what you do. You, you need to create labeled data uh, at some point. There's also unsupervised learning, which is much more of a researchy technique where you only have examples of the data you care about, not the labels. And I would say that's definitely an active area of machine learning research, but it's much more finicky to really get it to work in practice for real problems people care about today. But it's, you know, if we can make that work, it's going to be amazing because all of a sudden, you know, all the images in the world, even if they haven't been labeled, could be used to train unsupervised learning algorithms. There have been a couple of prominent examples of cases where algorithms have been taught to be biased because of the training data sets that they've been given. Are there ways that you or your colleagues are trying to kind of make the algorithms so that they're less prone to being biased independent of the training set they're given? Yeah, so so bias in machine learning algorithms is actually a, a big problem, and a, it's both something you need to be aware of if you're applying machine learning to problems in the world, and it's also an active area of research of how can we actually make these these systems in automated ways be less biased. As you as you observe, one of the issues is sometimes the data you're training on is biased. It may come from the real world and the world as it is, rather than the world as we wish it were. Or you've collected a data set where the distribution of data you're going to be using the model for doesn't match the distribution of data that you, you trained the model on. So for example, if you trained on a bunch of wedding photos of North American weddings and then start trying to recognize Indian weddings, that might be a different kind of, you know, the, the distribution of, that, of the data sets and the imagery you might see are quite different. So collecting data sets that have the right distributional properties of the problem you really care about and will ultimately be using the model is one technique that you, you should be applying for machine learning. 
There are also techniques where you can algorithmically adjust machine learning models in such a way that, for example, all other things being equal, you'd like these two groups of examples to have an equal chance of obtaining a certain kind of outcome. And that is sort of a way to sort of take a model that has been trained in perhaps a biased way and adjust the output of it uh, in an algorithmic way to make it less biased. On a similar topic, sometimes when you train machine learning algorithms, you cannot really say exactly how they work. They're kind of a black box. But if they're a black box, then you can't really quantify the uncertainty in what they're producing from your data. And in research, quantifying uncertainty is a very important step in the process. Right. I mean, I, I, I hear this, this observation a lot that sort of particularly the deep learning kinds of models that are, are being quite successful in many, many parts of machine learning are less interpretable than other kinds of simpler machine learning models. And I think actually interpret, creating techniques to make models more interpretable is an active area of research. And we're actually making some amount of progress there. I think pe people have this view from five or six years ago that they're black boxes. I would say they're like grayish boxes, uh, in many cases now not, not completely black. And that's important, like because for many kinds of, of problems, you actually want a system that can not only give you the output of the model, but help have an interpretable reason about why is the model saying this. For example, in some of the work we're doing in healthcare, it's not as actionable to suggest to a physician, you know, patient needs heart valve replacement. It's much more useful if you say patient needs heart valve replacement because of, you know, this obscure phrase in a medical note from two years ago and this elevated test result and this other thing. That is a much more intuitive system than a completely black box system. And I think there are many other applications like this where you do want interpretability. So it's definitely an active area of research. We have techniques that actually allow us to give some of these kinds of explanatory, um, at least identify parts of the data that the model is looking at when making a decision. But People are using these kinds of deep learning and machine learning algorithms in all kinds of places without often really understanding how they work. It's almost a moral problem here about how your research is applied. Right. So our group in particular, for example, has open sourced a very popular now machine learning system called TensorFlow, which is being used you know, throughout Google for lots of different kinds of product applications and research applications. But now that we open sourced it in the very end of 2015, has you know been downloaded, I forget, 15 million times or something, and has many, many, many users outside of Google using it in all kinds of organizations, you know, academic work, small companies doing interesting machine learning things. There's a, a company in the Netherlands that builds fitness sensors for cows, and they want to identify which cows are sort of feeling a little sick today and they analyze the data that the fitness sensors collect using machine learning. There's many other examples of socially beneficial uses or commercial uses of machine learning. You know, I think one of the things that we've done as a company at Google is we've put together a set of principles by which we think about how should machine learning, uh, how should we think about machine learning and where it should be applied and where it should not. 
And I think that that set of principles actually is a that we released publicly if, um, in earlier this year, May, I think, or June or something. That list of principles, I think, is, is really good to have clearly written down. And I'll point out that a, a few of those, it's not just a bulleted list of seven principles. There's actually deep research behind many of them. For example, one of them is about machine learning models should be applied without bias and, and should be fairly applied. And there's a whole line of research that underlies our thinking in that, that area, and it's advancing all the time. But you're right. There are many ways in which machine learning can be applied. And like any technology, you know, we may disagree with some uses of it and agree with others. And I think it's up to society to sort of figure out what uses of machine learning we want to like encourage and which ones we want to discourage. So could you go a little further on that topic and talk about privacy? I think there are some people who feel like this sort of there's no way to get away from these things now. And whether or not they like it, they're they're being monitored and they're being used in ways they don't understand. Sure. I mean, I think with the advent of you know, many many online services, obviously as people use those services, those create data about how those services are being used and often companies use that data to improve the services like understanding that when people watch this kind of video they may also be interested in this kind of video or um, things like that or when they mistype this word and then later correct it maybe we can learn a spelling correction system that helps all users based on the behavior of how people do spelling correction kinds of things so it's so one thing that I believe is people should have control over whether that data is collected. And if it is, then they should have the ability to delete it. And that deletion should take effect uh, in a timely manner as we, uh, you know, as people update the use of their, their machine learning systems. It, it is true that there are lots and lots of online systems and it's as people sort of grow up in more of an online era where they express themselves on social media and so on. I think the sort of uh, the behavior and decorum around privacy is changing in the last 10 or 20 years. So similarly, because algorithms are sometimes accused of putting people into silos, if there's a way to use machine learning to break people out of silos, have you considered that? Yeah, I mean, many of our products have more of a product focus on, you know, for example, recommendations. And you can, for example, if you like this sort of thing, it's very easy for machine learning systems to get, well, we should just recommend you more of that thing. And I think there is an opportunity there to encourage diversity in an algorithmic way of the kinds of things that people are exposed to in systems like that. And it's definitely something that, that we think about in, in the product level and different products have different sorts of sort of approaches to this, but it's definitely something we, we want to do and expose people to information they might find thought-provoking as opposed to things that completely agree with their, their current thinking. Do you place an emphasis on having a diversity of people in, in, from various backgrounds, from cultures, from other kinds of factors on your team in order to have more robust research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the basically computer science and machine learning are creating 
really interesting new products and applications of computing in the world, and they're affecting billions of people. Uh, you know, the use of new internet services and so on. And so you really want those services to be created by the breadth of people that are using them. And so it's really important to me that we find talented people all over the world with all kinds of different backgrounds to come together to help create new kinds of, of machine learning algorithms, new kinds of approaches, new kinds of products. As an example of that, we just announced our first research lab in, in Africa, in Accra, Accra, Ghana, that will be open as soon as the construction finishes in a few weeks, we hope. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to have that. I, the, the field of machine learning in the African continent has been, you know, growing very, very quickly. There's a lot of interest in researchers in, in young students and young practitioners there. I actually went to Cape Town, South Africa a month or so ago to participate in a deep learning in Daba, which was about 500 people from 40-ish countries around Africa all coming together to hear a series of lectures. And it was a fantastic experience. And so I want that diversity of people and backgrounds to all contribute to the field of machine learning and computing. Jeff Dean, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Jeff Dean is the head of Google's Division of Artificial Intelligence. He spoke with me at the annual meeting of Sigma's Eye, where he gave a keynote address on big data and the future of research. Read an excerpt of our interview in the May-June 2019 issue of American Scientist. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.